The more you know someone, the more you dislike them. At least that's what my high school senior history teacher told me. And I remember hearing that in one of our lectures and I, it just rubbed me the wrong way. I thought, that cannot be true. That cannot be real. I don't buy it. Of course, I didn't buy a lot of things when I was young. Um, now I know that I don't know what I don't know and you know all that stuff. I don't, whatever. But there was a time that, or at that time, I just, I just couldn't understand what he was, what he was trying to get at. Um, I thought, well, no, I, the, the things that I know, the people that I know, I love more because I know more of them. Um, but what he was trying to communicate is this familiar maxim: um, familiarity breeds contempt. There, there, is a, there is a truth to this, this idea that the more you know someone, well, the more you're going to get to know the things you don't like about them. The more you're going to get to know their warts and their, their you know, quabbles and their foibles and their whatever other made-up words I can come up with. The more we know those things, the more they tend to rub us the wrong way. And you've probably experienced that. Why is it that in our closest relationships... Marriage, family, children, uh, those close relationships or maybe even the close friendships that you have developed in your life, as much as you can say, those are wonderful, those are the people I love the most in life, but those are also the, the people with whom we have the biggest fights and disagreements and disappointments and hurts and offenses, right? Well, what happens... When somebody like Jesus comes to his hometown, returns to his relatives, returns to his household, what will the, their familiarity with him result in? Right? Well, that's kind of what we're going to look at today from Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And if you're able and desire, um, stand with me as I read Mark chapter 6 aloud today. You can follow along with me as I read. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for this and the challenge that it has already um, meant to me in my own life. And I pray, God, that that challenge will, will affect us all today. And that we'll hear 
exactly what it is that you would like us to hear and be changed by it today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we see the situation. Another story of Jesus and His comings and goings. And here He comes to His hometown. And Mark doesn't mention it by name uh, specifically here. But, uh, but looking back in the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. That He came from Nazareth into um, the, the region where where John the Baptist was baptizing, that's all back in chapter 1. And, and uh, the, other, the other Gospels confirm that his hometown here and where he was at was Nazareth. He comes back to his hometown, this little town that probably had no more than around 500 people or so living there um, in the first century. Um, one, one, um, one person described, uh, kind of interestingly, de- described the... Uh, the town of Nazareth as something like, um, let me see if I can get this right, an obscure hamlet, (laughs) an obscure hamlet of earthen dwellings chopped into 60 acres of rocky hillside. That's the little town that Jesus came from. Uh, It's kind of like telling people, yeah, I grew up in Moxie, uh, or or maybe even Yakima back in the day, or I'm, a, I'm from a little town, or I grew up in a little town called Colville, and they go, where's Colville? Where's that at? North of Spokane. Oh, I kind of have an idea of where Spokane is. Okay. Um, it's a tiny, it was a tiny little town, yet he's coming back to his people, right? The people who knew him, and knew him well. But he's coming back not just as... Uh, you know, the, the homeboy returning back to his family after going on some journeys. He's coming back as a teacher, yes. As a miracle worker, as one with wisdom. But he's coming back as so much more. But look what the familiarity, look, what, look, what the, the, look how the people respond to them, or respond to him. They respond in a couple of ways. One, they're so familiar with Jesus, they don't have any affection for Him. But two, they totally misunderstand who He really is. So, let's look at a couple of these things. And I I think for us, the challenge is, do you know Jesus? Are you so familiar with Jesus? that you have lost all affection for Him? Or or maybe beside that, you think you know Jesus. You think you know who He is. But maybe you misunderstand who He is meant to be in your life, what He has done for you, what He desires for you. So let's look at some of these in turn. First of all, let's look at explore this idea that familiarity extinguishes Affection. Familiarity extinguishes affection. Well, there he is, coming back to his hometown. Um, he goes to, to teach in the synagogue. Many people are astonished. They're like, wow, this is amazing. And here's what they say. And here's what they're saying amongst themselves, back and forth. Where did this man get this stuff? He didn't, go, he didn't leave Nazareth uh, back in the day to go to train with a rabbi. He didn't go to do this or that. 
How, how did he get this insight? Where did this wisdom come from? Who gave it to him? How did these, or how are these mighty works done by his hand? The hand of a carpenter. Because they had heard the stories. Here he comes. Here he comes. The, the, the teacher, the miracle worker, is returning back to his hometown. They'd heard the stories. In fact, Mark wants us to see in this passage, not divorcing this passage from what came before, Mark wants us to understand, he wants the readers to understand that this, the miracles that he was doing the rising, uh, raising a little girl from the dead, healing a woman of her disease, um, casting out a demon from a man, that these things were known. They knew that he was able to perform miracles. But yet, they took offense at him. They couldn't buy it. They were so familiar with him that they had no desire for Him, no love for Him. There was no joy in His appearance. Contrast that. <laughs> Contrast that with the, the joy, the longing, the, even the desperation in these people that we saw in chapter 5. When Jesus comes into their presence, they're thronging about Him. They're going for Him. There's no mention of crowds here in Nazareth at all. There's no... No. A crowd, hey, a crowd of 500 people would be pretty exciting for the River Church. But there are no crowds mentioned here. They're not thronging about Him. You see this? They called Him a carpenter. And, um, and that, that term is actually, it, it actually is more, more appropriately the term builder. Uh, he's a builder. He, he, he takes the raw materials to build something. And, and some people have, have thought, well, he's probably did more, probably worked more with stone than with wood, considering in the first century there was a lot more stone available in Palestine than there, than there was wood. But whatever this case, that this, this idea that he was a carpenter uh, was not ignoble in and of itself. It wasn't necessarily an insult to say, hey, he's a carpenter. But, you notice how he puts it, is not this the carpenter? It, there's, a, there's, a, there's a question behind it, or there's an accusation behind it. Aren't you just a commoner like the rest of us? Aren't you just like us? Do you have a, you have a normal job and you work with your hands. Just like us. Why should we listen to you? Why, why give you any credit whatsoever? Well, we can easily become so familiar with Jesus and the things of God, they become so commonplace that our affections fade out. Familiarity, how, how about this? Have you ever been so used to just going to worship every Sunday that it just becomes commonplace? You go in, the pastor tells a few jokes, says something inappropriate, we sing some songs, um, we stand, we sit, and then at the end of the day, when can I get home to get my roast out of the oven or, or whatever it is? But we, we can let that, wor that worship experience 
if we are not careful, can become so familiar to us that it's and so commonplace that our hearts really start to get hard to the things of God and what He wants to say to us during those times. Maybe, maybe that happens in our prayer life or in our reading of God's Word. Maybe that happens. We, we sort of go to, we go to missional community every week or we go to a discipleship group or some other Bible study or we go to a conference and... It's just so commonplace. I, I've heard all of these things before. We hear the gospel and we go, uh, yes, 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 I know Jesus loves us. Yes, I know that God loved the world. I, yes, I know He died for me. Um, yes, I know He wants me to share the gospel with others. We are so familiar with those themes that our hearts get hardened to them. And so what do we usually do? He said, I don't really need that anymore. It just doesn't speak to me. Like, I need to find a new church. I need to find a new group to meet with. I need to stop, stop doing those things. If, I'm not, if, it do, if it's not working for me, I'm not going to do it. We easily, we easily get caught up in that. We fail to see the beauty. We fail to see the good. We fail to see the grace that is given to us by God in those things, those, that, those means of grace in our lives. We can become like this church that Jesus spoke to in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. In fact, I think I put that up here. He writes to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This was a letter to the church in Ephesus where Jesus is saying, you have forgotten the love that you had at first. You have become so familiar with all of these things. You, you don't desire me. You don't love me. You don't seek me for joy. You know, there's no desperation in your life for the things of God. How true it is of us, of each of us. How easily our affections for Jesus are extinguished just because we already know who He is. We already know what He has done. Our hearts and our minds need to be on Him, need to be on His glory and His goodness, the, the compassion that He demonstrate in, demonstrated in these previous stories. If, our, if we will, will place our focus on Him, and not let, not let our, our, our knowledge of Him 
cause, us, cause our hearts or our love to grow cold. Let's not do that, friends. They, they let their familiar, familiarity extinguish any affection they had for them. And yes, I said, uh, uh, part, of, part of the answer for us and application for us is to get our hearts and our minds on Him, on who He is, on His glory, on His goodness, on His greatness on his compassion, his love. And that leads to this other, this other aspect of what they were dealing with. And that was that misunderstanding extinguishes faith. And not, it's not just familiarity, but we get so familiar that we think we know. We think we know all of these things. We think we know all there is to know about the gospel or about Jesus or about God. And yet, very likely, we're probably resting in misunderstanding. Let's not do that. Look, look what they did. And you can see this here. They, they asked some good questions. Where did he get this stuff from? Where's the power from? How, did, how is he doing this? Those are not bad questions. But yet, they immediately looked for a human explanation. <laughs> did they not? Where is not this? Look at them. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary. Hmm. What do you think they meant by that? In the Gospel of John, the rumor is spreading about Jesus. Aren't we right in saying that you are illegitimate? They used a different term. But they called him an illegitimate son. Uh, aren't we right in understanding that's who you are? And he's, you, don't even, you don't know me. You're misunderstanding. You don't understand. It, you know, it could be that they were just referring to him as the son of Mary because Mary was still living at the time. And, and his earthly father, Joseph, had, had died. It could be. It could be. But even in that time, even when the mother was a widow, they usually almost always referred to the person related to his father. But at any rate, they look to the earthly explanation. Aren't, isn't this the son of Mary? Aren't his brothers, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, they knew these guys. These are his brothers. They'd grown up together. They knew all of these guys. There's nothing particularly special about these other four. And, and aren't his sisters among us, here with us? In other words, his, one of his sisters is my wife. He had at least two sisters because it's plural. So he must have had at least two. We don't know their names. Uh, not, in the, not in the gospel record. But are not his sisters... What, what, ex, what possible explanation can there be for this man and what he has done? So yes, they're thinking in, ter in, in human terms only. And isn't that exactly what we've been doing in many churches for now several generations? And it, it Well, it's been going on for 2,000 years. Misunderstanding, seeing Jesus in human terms only, only as a prophet, only as a teacher, only as a wise man. We don't understand who He is. We don't understand what He came to do. And because of that, we take offense at Him. Because of that, He's a stumbling block. We can't, see, we can't put our faith in somebody like that. And why would we? Why would we? 
And I would never ask anybody. Don't, don't put your faith in a prophet. Don't put your faith in a wise man. Don't put your faith in anyone who's merely a teacher. He's not worthy of that. But if we misunderstand that he is more than a great prophet, that he's more than a great teacher, and he's even more than the greatest teacher, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, as Mark introduced his gospel with. When we realize that, it changes everything. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, I put this up on the screen as well. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And look how, look how the writer of Hebrews described Jesus. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is not a mere man. That is not a mere carpenter. That is not merely a good teacher or a good prophet or a great prophet. Look, Jesus even says, He says in, in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor. If He would have just stopped there, there would have been some truth to that. A prophet is not without honor. Yes, everybody honors a prophet. Everybody thinks highly of a prophet. Everybody respects a prophet, right? But He says no, except in His hometown and among His relatives and His own household. These are the people who misunderstand who He is. They are thinking only in human terms. They are failing to see the beauty of what the writer of Hebrews tries to capture. That He is more. That He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He, he is more superior than all other things. He is God Himself in the flesh. God come to reveal Himself in human form. John 1.14, he, he, he dwelt among us. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20 also expresses who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Keep going. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body. The church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. is powerful. How, how should we respond to Jesus? Not, not with contempt. Not with offense. Oh, but we will. And others around us will. We, he will say something to us that we don't like. He will point out our faults. What, is, what was He doing? He began to teach. 
And what does He teach? What did Jesus teach? Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He came saying, Repent! <laughs> he told people, You're wrong! You're believing the wrong things. You're living the wrong ways. And when Jesus comes to us with full power and authority given to Him as the Son of God, He challenges us. And yes, we will be offended at Him. But blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on account of Him. Here's what happens though. Here's what happens when we come and we misunderstand Him. We, it extinguishes our faith and what does that mean? We have no requests for Him. We have no prayers to Him. We see nobody in Nazareth falling down before Him, begging Him to do for Him, for them, what only Jesus can do for them. We see none of that that we have just looked at in the last chapter. There are no prayers. There are no requests. There's no desire. Yes, no affection. We've seen that. There's no repentance. There's no hearing of the message and going, I repent. I am wrong in this. There's no obedience. Our faith is easily extinguished by not understanding who Jesus is. So my friends, let us meditate on all that He is. Take these passages. Oh my goodness, if Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1, these few verses were committed to our memory and we, we were to think about them and meditate on them on a regular basis and all of the other truths all throughout Scripture that point to Jesus as well. What would that do for our souls? What would that do for our faith? Yes, so meditate on those things. And then, and then take some steps of faith. Pray. Say to Him, I believe. Help my unbelief. Ask. Repent of those things that He's pointing out to us. Repent because when the Holy, when the Holy One steps into our presence, it illuminates all of our sin, all of our wickedness, all of our hard-heartedness. Respond with repentance and obedience. Well, it says that He could do no mighty work there except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then it says He marveled because of their unbelief. There's marveling, that word appears a few times in the Gospels. Most of the time it's people are marveling at Jesus, at what He's doing. They're, they're going, whoa, this guy's blowing my mind. And here we see Jesus... Mark is helping us out here, I think, to see how, how completely mind-blowing it was that they would not believe in Him. I, I pray that He doesn't marvel when He looks at our hearts in that way. But yet, here's the thing. The, the irony of this story and the Gospel account we have in Mark is that it was this very disobedience. It was this very rejection that brought about 
our atonement, our salvation. Mark is foreshadowing something for us. Foreshadowing a moment when Jesus will be rejected fully. He is culminating the, the ministry of Jesus, his, his earthly presence, God with us, is in effect, to fulfill all of the prophecies. You heard Ezekiel chapter 3, right? That we read earlier today. And God is telling Ezekiel, go tell them, thus says the Lord. But they're not going to listen. They're rebellious and they're going to keep rebelling. Even though they know the words that are coming out of your mouth, they are not going to listen. It's not that they don't understand what you're saying. They don't want to believe. Their hearts are hard and they're rebellious. And then in Isaiah... Isaiah chapter 6, the commissioning of, of Isaiah the prophet. He says, here am I, send me. What should I do? Where should I go? And God tells him, go tell a people who are going to hear but not hear. And they're going to see but not really see. They're going to reject everything that you've said. And it was that very rejection of God that brought about God's perfect plan. Because He had a plan to deal with our greatest problem. One, one writer in commenting on this section of Scripture said this, that humanity wants something other than what God gives. Has that been true with you? It has been true with me. I want things in this life, but they're not what God wants to, to give me in Christ. He goes on, the greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, Oh, He could do no mighty works there. Well, why not? Isn't He sovereign? Can't He do everything? Why didn't He do this? That's not the greatest obstacle to faith. But it's the unwillingness, He says, of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the Son of Mary. So what did Jesus do? He did become a carpenter. He did take on flesh. He took on all of the weakness of humanity. And then, He dealt with the rejection of His people. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. I have that for you too. He came to His own. And His own people did not receive Him. But here's hope, folks. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came to be rejected. His death on the cross was the ultimate, the ultimate rejection of who He was. But it was the ultimate victory over sin, over death. It was the ultimate victory that quickened lives. Rejection, if I could put it this way, quickens the dead. I think we saw that up there. Rejection quickens the dead. It was, his, it was the rejection of Christ that made it all possible. And it was His resurrection that vindicated Him was the ultimate vindication.
that sin and death and rejection and all of that will not be the end. It will not be the end of Christ. It will not be the end of who He is. He will reign. He does reign. And He will reign in the lives of all of those who by faith receive Him, who believe in His name, who are His children. And that is what we're called to today. That we're called to respond to that. Uh, How will we, how will you respond to the Christ, the Son of God? Are your affections waning? Is the desire or the joy that you have in your salvation gone? Perhaps you need to pray with with King David who said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Is your faith faltering? Is there repentance? Is there holiness? Is there obedience? Is there prayer? We will not pray to a God we don't believe can answer prayer. We will not put faith in a Jesus who we don't believe can quicken the dead, let alone deal with all of the things in my life right here and right now. So what shall you do? What will you do? What will we do as a people? What has God been calling you to do? What has God been revealing to you about Jesus? What has God been revealing to you about discipleship, following Him? What it means to put your faith and trust in Him? I want to invite you to respond how God is leading you to respond today in whatever way that might be. Will you pray with me? Father, um, I know for myself that I have failed to see you as great and powerful and glorious in your Son, Jesus. I know for me that my prayers have languished. know for me that just the familiarity of of your word the practices that I follow on a regular basis of, of worship and fellowship and as beautiful as those are God I am constantly tempted to see them just as another commonplace occurrence in my life and to not see how in those ordinary means of grace you are doing something extraordinary that you are present with us and that you desire to speak and be heard. Forgive me, God. And forgive us. God, whatever it is that you're, you're teaching us, whatever it is that you are revealing to us, may we respond in faith to it today at this time. Lord, if there's anybody here who, is, who does not have assurance of faith, Lord, I pray that today 
will be the day that they'll turn to you and confess faith in you. To see the beauty of your Son, Jesus. The glory, the, the majesty, the, the awesomeness of this gospel message that you, God, came to earth to live, to die, and to rise again for us. Lord, I pray that um, for each of us who believe that truth, we will walk in it with joy and with glory given to you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.